Hey everyone, welcome to Faith in Capital. I'm your host, Chase Dibbs. As I mentioned in the first episode of this series of The Wretched of the Earth, um, I already actually posted these first two episodes. And again, while I think there are some interesting things that I could have added or changed and maybe some things I would have said differently, I'm not going to worry about that. Um, I'm just going to post this one as it is. And, but I do want to ground this conversation on organizing. It's an organizing's relationship to spontaneous rebellion. Uh, this is the whole kind of topic of, the, uh, of this episode. I want to ground this in something, some terrible news that I just received. Uh, an old coworker of mine who worked at the airport in Jersey Mike's just uh, was killed by COVID this past week. And this is news coming to me when, in a week where we are losing 4,000 plus people a day. We're not losing them, right? They're being murdered. This is, um, this is a structural system of death. We are now well over 400,000 U.S. Americans who have been murdered by this this failure of a system. Actually, it's a very successful system, right? It's not. It's doing exactly what it wants to do. It wants to make profit. It wants to um, suppress and oppress working class and Black and Latinx and Indigenous and Asian and Middle Eastern folk, right? So this is a successful system, right? It's doing exactly what it wants to do, and it's killing. Us. It's killing the most vulnerable uh, of, of us. It's killing the poorest of us, and it's also killing targeted populations due to race, sexuality, gender, religion. And so I think this, um, this topic and this chapter of the book that we're going to engage is timely. Um, uh, but I also just want to step back and say, you know, if you yourself, if you've lost someone to this, um, to covid I am thinking of you, I'm praying for you, I'm mourning with you. Uh, you are not alone in this, and we will build power to, uh, to win a better world. And uh, to not just, re- you know, to receive justice, but to enact um, liberation from these systems of death and domination. So I'm thinking and praying for you all, and there is no better time to start thinking about organizing and organization, um, and also the roles that, say, working class folk, um, the relationship we should have with people who are completely unemployed and semi-employed, and folks who are completely out of work, not just temporarily, but um, probably for the foreseeable future, right? Tens of millions of U.S. Americans, but literally, I don't know how many hundreds of millions, maybe, you know, maybe even a billion of, of human beings will be excluded from the wages that under capitalism we need in order to survive. And, and again, I'll leave you with that. We are in an, a, an incredibly intense um, moment of, of history, um, of, of humanity, of human being. And it is time that we start to think about what has to happen in order for us to build a world uh, constituted by love, constituted by mutuality, constituted by, by, by liberation and, and genuine freedom, not this self-absorbed, selfish, just disgusting language that a freedom and democracy that the U.S. talks about, right? Genuine, I'm talking about genuine love for uh, one's neighbor in the planet and the land and the world. And so, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Um, again, this is part two. If you haven't checked out part one, um, I recommend, uh, I encourage you to do that. And I hope this is a interesting and helpful conversation on organization and on the relationship between working class folk and 
people who are entirely unemployed or criminalized. What's up? If you haven't checked out part one of the Wretched of the Earth series, I highly recommend you do that because this episode is going to zoom in on chapter two, which is titled Spontaneity, Its Strengths and Weaknesses. What I'm doing with this text is kind of going back and forth between pulling out some of Fanon's points and offering some reflection upon what he is saying. And a quick reminder that this text is not written to the colonizer. The Wretched of the Earth is written specifically to peoples living under the colonial rule of capitalist empires. But I also want to suggest that working-class listeners, particularly from settler colonial nations like the U.S., hear Fanon's words through two different lens. On one hand, as the colonizer, and on the other, as the colonized, the exploited, and the oppressed. Um, I'll say more about this, or I, I said more about this in part one, so I really recommend starting there. Alright, so in this episode, we're going to engage a few points. One, the lumpen proletariat, right, or the peasantry, as a potentially revolutionary class. Two, the importance of spontaneous rebellions for organized revolutions. Three, the significance of local and particular struggles for building movements for radical transformation. Four, the limitations of hate for sustaining long-term struggles for liberation, and then five, how the ruling class will use concessions to undermine a movement's momentum. Let's get to it. For anyone who believes that workers alone, in the old orthodox Marxist sense, are the only class of people with revolutionary potentiality, Fanon is going to jam a wrench between your gears. Right off the bat, chapter two starts off with Fanon suggesting that the non-proletarianized peasantry is the revolutionary class that can overthrow the settler nation in a colony's revolutionary struggle for national independence. Fanon says, quote, It is within this mass of humanity, this people of the shanty towns, at the core of the lumpen proletariat, that the rebellion will find its urban spearhead. For the lumpen proletariat, that horde of starving men, uprooted from their tribe and from their clan, constitutes one of the most spontaneous and the most radically revolutionary forces of a colonized people, end quote. And I'll say more in a minute about who the lumpen proletariat is for us today in the U.S., but this is an interesting argument for a few reasons. In colonies, Fanon is aware of how settlers or the oligarchs will pit the rank-and-file workers in the towns against the rural peasantry. What is more, Fanon writes, quote, the colonialists make use of this antagonism in their struggle against the nationalist parties. They mobilize the people of the mountains and the upcountry dwellers against the townsfolk, end quote. And I think this is illuminating for us because it is an excellent example of the ways in which different groups with common and different interests, common and different struggles, can either be united against or divided by the common higher enemy. Also, the lumpen proletariat have been spoken poorly of by some Marxists in the past, but Fanon is now centering them in the struggle against settler colonialism and is suggesting they will play a foundational role in the global struggle for socialism. This is 
also an interesting and unique argument to be making because Fanon is saying that revolutionary potential can be found beyond the rank-and-file class of workers who exchange their labor for wages. The processes through which capital expands itself within particular nations, and especially across the globe, encompass far more than the bodies and minds of those who directly produce profits for bosses, which means the fire and devotion needed for overthrowing capitalism, imperialism, and neocolonialism can be located in groups that might surprise us. Revolutionary and more materialist feminists have long made a similar argument, I believe, by suggesting that unpaid reproductive laborers across the world are also a potentially revolutionary class of people, despite their not directly exchanging any labor for wages when performing that work. And so, just as revolutionary feminists have expanded our understanding of who participates in the various processes of capitalism's production and accumulation of profits, I think what Fanon is getting at here is not that direct producers of profit, right, people who work for wages, are not fundamental to struggles for socialism. Instead, Fanon is stretching us to see the explosive and revolutionary power of a particular group of people that is often deemed disposable not just to systems of domination and oppression, but also to struggles against capitalism. In my opinion, this isn't an undermining of Marxist analysis here. Rather, Fanon is expanding and building upon Marxism. But fully industrialized nations like the U.S. no longer have masses of peasants in the countryside who can survive without need of exchanging labor for wages. The entire U.S. has been proletarianized, or been made wage-dependent, right? And so, I want us to think for a minute about who the lumpen proletariat might be for us in the United States. The lumpen proletariat in the U.S. are the masses of unemployed and semi-employed persons. Perhaps at times a portion of this group is employed temporarily during a boom in production, but they are the first to be let go when production, consumption, and employment all starts to spiral downward in a crisis just like the one we are, have, uh, the one that we have recently begun. The lumpen proletariat in the U.S. are the housing insecure and homeless. They are the currently and formerly incarcerated. They are poor workers working in illegal industries like the drug trade. This mass of people are the poor whites in rural towns, in Appalachia and in the South. They are disproportionately black, indigenous, Latinx, and persons of color. The lumpen proletariat is disproportionately female and gender non-conforming. And they are the ones who have been willing to light police precincts and Wendy's on fire over the last few months. To be clear... Fanon is not idealizing this class of people. He thinks that their structural position as the lumpen proletariat, as a people who have been disposed of and thrown away, is what tends to make them more radical and determined than rank-and-file workers in towns or cities. And he wants us to realize that they have an explosive fire not easily tamed with niceties and concessions offered by the ruling class, whether it be through their politicians or the police primarily because they really have nothing to lose. Which leads us to the next point. Spontaneous rebellions, while often dismissed and overlooked by more reformist labor organizers, are important signals for people who want to organize for revolutionary change. But let's start with the spontaneity first. 
Despite what Twitter activists believe, rebellions and uprisings are not revolutions. They're not organized. There's no political education happening. There's no theory or well-thought-out strategy for winning involved. And they do not bring about any change at all. The uprisings that have emerged in cities across the U.S. this year are a case in point. But just because they are spontaneous instead of organized, Fanon says, doesn't mean they should be dismissed or ignored. Instead, Fanon wants organizers to see the rage, the conviction, the explosive fire of these rebellions, because it is people who participate in these events who are, one, less likely to get scared out of a fight, and two, less likely to be bought with shallow reforms. Referring to rank-and-file organizers, Fanon writes, quote, Those leaders who have fled from the useless political activity of the towns rediscover politics, no longer as a way of lulling people to sleep, nor as a means of mystification, but as the only method of intensifying the struggle and of preparing the people to undertake the governing of their country, clearly and lucidly, end quote. So rather than talking shit on people who light Wendy's and cop cars and banks on fire, we should be going directly to those people, allowing their fire to transform us, and then organizing them. Because at some point, we need to turn spontaneous rebellion into organized revolution. And through organizing rebels and their leaders, Fanon says, quote, The leaders of the rebellion come to see that even very large-scale peasant risings need to be controlled and directed into certain channels. These leaders are led to renounce the movement insofar as it can be termed a peasant revolt, and to transform it into a revolutionary war. They discover that the success of the struggle presupposes clear objectives, a definite methodology, and above all, the need for the mass of the people to realize that their unorganized efforts can only be a temporary dynamic. You can hold out for three days, maybe even for three months, on the strength of the admixture of sheer resentment contained in the mass of the people. But you won't win a national war. You'll never overthrow the terrible enemy machine. And you won't change human beings if you forget to raise the standard of consciousness of the rank and file. Neither stubborn courage nor fine slogans are enough. End quote. The point here is that people committed to revolutionary transformation need to go to the rebels, need not, not look down upon their lack of organization, and rebels, if they want to actually transform the world that disproportionately burdens them, need to see that their spontaneous violence and resistance will never be enough to end their oppression and domination. They need their rebellious violence to be channeled into revolutionary violence. And here is where we get to the importance of localization. I don't actually have any words from Fanon for this point, but I think the importance of local struggle is stated in a more or less indirect way throughout this entire chapter. And so, something I've been thinking about recently is how the social, economic, and political change we want to see happen can occur. If a revolution is ever to take place in the U.S., or even if we hope to win major reforms that will make life better for the masses of people along our way to systems change, we have to organize communities around more local and particular issues first, 
then connect their struggles to the larger struggles for socialism, black liberation, climate change, the end of imperialism, etc. And to make this more concrete, I have two examples. I took a job as a fast food worker at the airport so that I could join the labor movement and learn how to organize. And one of the lessons I've learned is that even though the boss is incredibly and brutally racist and sexist and exploitative to the bodies and minds of, say, Han, Amelia, and Joseph, you don't just start talking to your coworkers about how much the boss sucks or how not making poverty wages would make all of our lives better. You have to find out their particular issues and connect their particular concerns to the collective fight against the boss. Sure, a coworker might need more wages, but why or who do they really need money for? Or maybe the poverty wages isn't even their main concern. Maybe the constant disrespect from management or the continual understaffing is what angers them the most. Good organizers find out what particular people are most concerned about and then help the worker connect their issues to the collective struggle. June may want more paid sick leave. Roberto may need more control over his work schedule. Precious may want a new management structure so they can do their work and not be harassed and disrespected throughout the day. But if you want them to collectively struggle against the common enemy, right, their boss, then you want then you have to organize them around their personal and particular concerns. Another example I wanted to share is in the tenants union, I'm trying to uh, get off the ground here in Charlotte. In our stated purpose for the United Tenants of Charlotte, we explicitly note that we are not just interested in creating an opportunity for tenants to better their own lives in solidarity with their neighbors. Of course we want that, but we want more than that. We equally want this organization to be a means for the raising and radicalization of political consciousness in Charlotte, and an instrument through which we can start to build a solid base of anti-racist, feminist, revolutionary socialists in the city. And so here, I want us to see that through organizing around local and particular concerns, a few things can happen that are fundamental to building revolutionary struggles for liberation. One, the raising of political consciousness, right? The necessary political education that needs to occur. And two, base building. We cannot YouTube or podcast or tweet or book club or mass text our way out of this world. It will never happen. We have to organize people through local and particular struggles. And it is through these kinds of fights that we can transform consciousness and build a base strong enough to actually usher in an entirely other system. So what's next? Do we try and get everyone to hate the right people and build a movement around resentment? Well, Fanon says no. Hate isn't a problem for Fanon. But speaking to the native who has come face to face with the brutality of the settler, he says, quote, But you do not carry on a war, nor suffer brutal and widespread repression, nor look on while all other members of your family are wiped out in order to make racialism or hatred triumph. Racialism and hatred and resentment, a legitimate desire for revenge, cannot sustain a war for liberation, end quote. Hate alone is not strong enough to get us through long struggles for revolutionary change. Something more profound, more convicting is needed. 
perhaps something that can speak to the spiritual depths of our being. And lastly, perhaps when the movement has peaked or the ruling class is getting tired, Fanon warns the rebels turned revolutionaries of the trickery of concessions. It must be clearly explained to the rebel that he must on no account be blindfolded by the enemy's concessions. These concessions are no more than sops. They have no bearing on the essential question. And from the native's point of view, we may lay down that a concession has nothing to do with the essentials if it does not affect the real nature of the colonial regime, end quote. Don't be fooled or taken by reforms, Fanon says. This is a tactic that is meant to keep settlers, oligarchs, and rulers in their place of dominance over the people. And that's what I got for our second episode on the Wretched of the Earth. Let's keep our love turned toward the people and fashioned in the spirit of liberation. Peace, y'all.